Good morning. I didn't do a mic test either, but I think, I think, can you hear me? Am I good? Not yet. There we go. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, good morning. I'm, I'm Jim Grossman. For those who uh, may be new here or wondering how long that I've been here, I serve as pastoral intern and have for about eight months now. Um, I'll be done in, in four weeks, and uh, this may be my last sermon, although I may preach again in, in the beginning of uh, July, uh, one of the first two Sundays. Um, uh, today we're at Mark 10, uh, verses 13 to 16. Uh, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, and most recently uh, Pastor Joe preached on chapter 10, uh, two sermons on divorce, uh, verses 1 through 12, and instead of uh, preaching 13 to 16 and then the first half of the portion on the rich young man, uh, it made more sense for him to do both of those portions on the rich young ruler. And so that's why we're here today at Mark 10, verses 13 to 16, with the title heading, which the NIV has, The Little Children and Jesus. It's page uh, 716 if in the church Bibles if you'd like to follow along. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we pray and ask that you would make us children. Not to be naive, but to have belief in you. Not with blind faith but to trust you with childlike innocence, to know you in our hearts, not just our heads. Give us wisdom for our heads, but also give us understanding for our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them question to ask might be why, um, but before that, what's, what's the lead up to this? Well, flipping back in your Bibles, you'll see in chapter 9 that they were in Capernaum, that's verse 33, the disciples were being taught, and Jesus takes a little child in his arms, and he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. He says this, and he continues to teach them. He teaches them about miracles in his name. He teaches about causing little ones to stumble. He talks about heaven and hell. And then after Jesus left that place, chapter 10, verse 1, he went into the region of Judea across the Jordan, and again crowds came to him, and then, as was his custom, he taught them. Now sometimes he taught in houses, and sometimes he taught on the hillside. Sometimes he did teach in synagogue. In any case, here he is in chapter 10, surrounded by crowds, teaching them. And the Pharisees come up to ask him, 
some questions. And after Jesus answers those questions, we see that now, in, in the midst of this, people are coming forward with their little children to bring them up to Jesus and have him touch them. Now, why? Well, they wanted Jesus to bless their children. That's not a very unreasonable thing. It makes sense. But the disciples, verse 13, rebuked them. Now, it doesn't appear that the children were, were sick or ill, like many of the others who would come rushing to Jesus to be touched by him to get healing. Um, it appears that they're healthy, and the parents simply, want, simply did just want Jesus to touch them for the sake of blessing. Something else we should also notice is that they're little children. And, and so that kind of reminds me just of kids in the kingdom here, and I really appreciate how Joe teaches the little children. And uh, it kind of reminds me of this scene in some ways. And uh, if we'll notice, um, the descriptor there is, is little children. It's not that they were big children. Verse 16, he, he took these children in his arms and he put his hand on them and blessed them. Now, I don't know how little they were and if they had to be babies so that he could put them in his arm or if they were small enough to where he could have them on his lap and, and hold them. Uh, but in any case, the disciples were rebuking the parents who were bringing them telling them, don't bring your children up to Jesus. So it was Jesus' custom to address the crowds and, and talk to everybody and teach them. And here his disciples, they're kind of out in front in some way. And they're kind of like down there, kind of as like Jesus can see them, and they're close enough for him to see them. And they're like, no, don't bring your children up here to Jesus. He's kind of busy right now. And it's... it's uh, the disciples are rebuking them, telling them not to do that. Like, they don't have to go home, but they can't come up here. Uh, you can't bring them to Jesus. And their, their attitude isn't so gentle. Uh, verse 13, the word in the Greek there, uh, rebuke, it's, it's basically what it means in English, to rebuke, uh, to straightly charge, to tax with fault, rebuke, reprove. Censor severely, admonish or charge sharply. So they weren't really down there saying, oh, well, you know, this is a, this is a teaching time right now and you just sort of need to uh, be quiet. It's proper time, proper place. Uh, they were more like possibly, you know, God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. And so you can't bring these children up to him right now. This is teaching time and, and that would be disorderly. Yet Jesus doesn't think so. He's perfectly able to respond on the fly, to be able to have a teachable moment and to do it in a very orderly way. Now the disciples were there and they said something they shouldn't have. Now maybe it wasn't what I just said. Maybe it wasn't about a concern they had about being orderly. Uh, one of, maybe they saw the child as unimportant, children that way. One of the commentators I read said, young children had no standing in society. And so it's possible that uh, this was true, and the disciples were stopping the children for this reason, which if they were would be really, really sad, uh, the irony being that those in society who were dependent and weak and powerless, these were the ones they were stopping from getting a blessing from Jesus. You know, Pastor Joe said, if you think about it, everything Jesus did was upside down from the way that the world did it. He talked to women, which was apparently unheard of in that day. I should make the clarification. 
Uh, it was unheard of in that day to talk to women uh, publicly as a man. Uh, and, and I make that clarification because so often in our culture, we're sort of inundated with this, uh, what I would call ahistorical, uh, sort of almost political revisionist uh, view on history, this mindset with this idea that you know men and women have been trying to destroy each other for centuries. And I was watching this news clip, and, and I don't want to con- you to consider this uh, a digression from the topic of children, if you would just follow me for a moment. Uh, because it ties in, but I was watching this news clip where the person was asked about this view they had, this view that they thought that um, the idea that women were just extremely oppressed throughout history was sort of an appalling theory. And the interviewer said, well, well, they haven't had a great time, though, have they? And the reply was, well, who has had a great time in history? And by what standard? Uh, by war? I mean, what's, what standard are you measuring? What's your, what's your standard? And so the interviewer uh, offered a couple standards, and the response was that he agreed. There are and have been inequalities in the catastrophes that each gender has been subjected to. And he said, but hey, you know, there's a few things you've got to get straight first. First of all, history's a rough business, and everyone had it rough. Not too far back, just 1895, people lived on less than a dollar a day, which is absolute poverty by today's standards. People were brutally poor for almost the entire course of human history, and it was rough. And so, well, did men or women have it worse? And I'll add, well, did children? Well, it's a complicated question, but everyone had it pretty bad, is what he said. And apart from the pure catastrophe of existence that was shared, more or less equally by the genders and age groups, it's like most of the time, men and women helped each other. Women raised their sons, husbands protect their families, and he said, you know, I'm not really buying this whole sexes have been at each other's throat for the entire history of mankind. It's like, no, wrong. And on another deeper level, he said, I don't like the whole game. The whole game is let's divide people into groups and and contrast their oppression. Now, I don't know to what level children were oppressed, or or if oppressed is even the right word at all, but at least one commentator said, young children had no standing in society. And the degree to which that is true and whatever that means, that uh, whether the disciples were rebuking the parents because the children were like disruptive to Jesus' teaching or whether they were rebuking the parents because they thought that children were unimportant, to whichever reason it was and to whatever degree it, it goes, either way, whatever reason, what the disciples were doing was wrong. And it made Jesus upset that they were doing it. Jesus broke the cultural norms. He talked publicly with women. He ate with sinners, which was one of uh, the ways that really upset the religious people. He didn't do that. And here he meets with children because he has something important to teach by their example, regardless of whether it disrupted his teaching or it was counter-cultural. The disciples were doing and saying something they shouldn't have, something that was theologically incorrect. They were rebuking people, and they were telling other people that they were incorrect when, in fact, it was the disciples who were incorrect. And so Jesus sees this in verse 14, and when he sees them acting this way, he was indignant. The word indignant in English also captures the Greek pretty well feeling or showing anger or annoyance at what is perceived as unfair treatment. The Greek means thoroughly displeased or very much displeased. It goes so far as to carry grief. 
He was grieved. The flavor of the word carries grief out to the point of anger, a state of anger aroused by injustice. And so when Jesus saw the disciples down there stopping these people and incorrectly rebuking them, he was grieved. He was displeased and thoroughly displeased, and he was a little bit angry about it too. He was upset that this thing that was going wrong, he was upset and disgusted at the injustice of what was happening. And so he rebuked the disciples who were rebuking other people, saying, you know what, disciples, you can't rebuke them like that. And so he says to them, let the children come to me, and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So two main points. Number one, Jesus says what he's going to say. Let the little children come to me, and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then number two, he explains what he meant by it, who the such as these are. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Point one, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. First, I think you have to ask two questions. First, what is the kingdom of God? And second, what does it mean for that kingdom to belong to such as these? Now, before going in depth, on these two questions, I'd like you to just think with me for a moment how we might hinder them. King James says, forbid them not. In Greek, hinder has the flavor of denying or refusing, standing in the way of or turning away from, which is what the disciples were doing. They were turning people away from Jesus. They were standing in the way and denying the parents from bringing the children to Jesus. And my wife and I were for a short time, we lived in a small little town in, in I- northern Iowa. And uh, while we were there, we went to this, this little church. At the time, we were living in a camper on a campground uh, in the town that this church was in. And uh, they would send their little boys down on the four-wheelers and ATVs, and this little 10-year-old would hop out with two big garbage bags of corn and said, my mom said, take as much as you want. And... Uh, as I read this passage, I couldn't help but flash back to this little church in Iowa. Uh, from Sunday school to after the worship service, right away, and every Sunday after that, it, is, it, it was as if we had been going to church there for 20 years, for my whole life. It was a proper and unique sense of uh, belonging, the way that uh, church should be. And so, when they invited us to come to Bible study, we thought, sure, okay. We got there, the whole church was there. Now, granted, it was a small church, so it was 30, 40 people, and they were gathered in one yard of uh, the peop- one of the congregates' houses. It was really neat. It was like a graduation party, and after we got done eating food, they said, uh, well, let's pull out the Bibles and study some scripture. And they didn't tell the kids, uh, get out of here. Now, go down in the basement. Uh, you don't have anything to learn from this. They didn't uh, say, go out on the field and, and play with the neighbors. They just opened the Bible and started studying it. Kids who were five years old, eight years old, ten years old, they were asking questions. Not silly questions, but profound questions, the way little kids do that. I was somewhat shocked, but I looked around. This was normal for them, and they gave the kids a really good, sound biblical answer. And I think I was just shocked because I hadn't really encountered that before. Um, But I'll tell you one thing. They certainly weren't hindering the children from coming to know Jesus through the text of the Bible. That's something to think about. Now, maybe not too intensely, because there is an appropriate time and place, and 
setting for different formats of study. But this was just an example I couldn't shake in coming to this text because these people that I encountered, they had time for the children. And in Mark, here, Jesus had time for the children. And he made a point to illustrate it, and he made a point to tell them, don't hinder them from coming, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So the kingdom of God, before answering what it means for the kingdom of God to belong to ones like these little children, let's first ask, well, what is a kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? And so before we can answer, well, what is the kingdom of God? Maybe we should ask ourselves, what is a kingdom? Jesus is drawing his illustration from that of a kingdom. Now, today there aren't too many left, uh, but normally a kingdom has a king. He has subjects and usually a place that they control, a territory of some kind. The subjects are the people, the territory is a nation. If you were born in medieval France, the king of France is your king. The king of England is not your king. If you were born in England, then the king of England is your king, and the king of France is not your king. So Jesus is borrowing from this illustration of earthly royalty as he relates it to his kingdom. Using that illustration and thinking about, well, the kingdom of God, and asking, well, what is the kingdom of God? We need to start filling in the blanks now, filling in the blanks of who are the people of the kingdom of God. And who's the king? Well, the king of the kingdom of God is, of course, God. And, well, who are the people? His people, who belong to the kingdom, they are such as these. They're the ones who are like these little children. If you think about it, most of the time to be a citizen of a country, you have to be born there. Like I said, if you're born in France, the king of France is your king. And this is a metaphor, an illustration that Jesus is using. So let's take it that next step and make it spiritual. If you're born into the kingdom of darkness, then your king is that king. You know, you don't want to take metaphors too far, but in order to be born in the kingdom of God, you have to be born into it. And that's really not taking it too far, because that's exactly what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born into it. Born again. Born a second time, born a different way. Nicodemus doesn't really quite understand. He's like, what are you saying? Uh, Born again? Like, I was born once when I came out of my mother as a little baby, but now that I'm a man, how can I crawl back in my mother and be birthed out a second time? So Jesus has to make this distinction for him. Look, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and born of the Spirit. So it's born in a different way, Nicodemus. You were talking about being born as a human. Well, flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at me saying that you have to be born again. So that's John 3. And back, so back to Mark. Don't hinder them from coming to me. Coming to the kingdom only happens in a very specific way. And let me tell you something. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And anyone who won't receive it, the way that a little child does, will never enter it. So what does it mean for the kingdom of God to belong to them? Now, as I've pointed out, Jesus says such as these. It's not just that the kingdom of God belongs to little children. But no, The kingdom of God belongs to people who are such as these children are. So it's not the fact that they are children that's important, but that there is a way in which a child receives something that is important. Because it isn't that Jesus is saying that all little children by default are saved or naturally drawn to God. Rather, it's quite the opposite. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, children included, because all sinned. Our human nature is inclined towards sin and going our own way. So it's not that they're children, but it's that there's a way that a child comes and receives something. That's important. The Greek word for belong there, it's, it's literally exists. So it reads literally, don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God exists for such as these. This helps, I think, because ultimately the kingdom does belong to God. It's his kingdom. He owns it. It belongs to him, but it exists for such as these. Okay, so beyond the idea of existing for such as these and to the idea of belonging, why didn't they translate it literally? Well, Jesus' coming, his following explanation here informs that. He's talking about receiving it. And if you receive something, well, then it belongs to you. It exists for you. It's for you. And if you receive it, then it's yours. Point number two, Jesus clarifies what this belonging and existing for means, that the truth is, is that anyone who will not receive the kingdom of the God like a little child will never enter it. He's clarifying who the such as these are and the way that they receive it, the way that they receive the kingdom of God. And God helps us through Paul on this reception in Romans 5 to think about it in terms of gift language. So if you think about a gift and you received a gift, the gift now belongs to you. The owner can't take it back. If they do, it's, it's really no longer a gift. There's some politically incorrect terms for those types of gifts. But really, if someone were to take something back that they gave you, then it never really belonged to you. It never really was a gift at all. They were just sort of letting you have it for a short time. In order for something to really honestly be a gift, it has to be given with no strings attached and no return of that gift ever. And no payment for that gift. Because if I give you something and then I demand that you pay me for it, well then... I haven't given it to you. I've sold it to you. Now, in terms of ownership, whether something was given to you or whether you bought it, it still belongs to you. You've, you've, if you've received the gift, you now own it, and it belongs to you. And that's what salvation is like, except for that you can't buy it. This is what the kingdom of God is like. You have to receive it. You can't buy it or earn your way in. And when Paul preaches about the gift of salvation... In Romans 5, 12 to 17, he says that it's by grace, through faith, that not of yourself. So you didn't buy it, you didn't pay for it, you can't merit the kingdom, only royalty inherits the kingdom. It was a gift, it was given to you by grace, through faith, that not of yourself. It's salvation, it's the gift of God, and the gift of God is not like the trespass. The gift is something special and different, and it can't be given back. It's not like the trespass. And when Paul is talking about, well, what the gift is like, And it's not like the trespass. He's talking about the result of the gift. He's talking about some of the qualities of the gift, the reception of which is by grace through faith. And Jesus in Mark 10 is talking about the reception of the gift as well. He's talking about the reception of the kingdom of God. So Paul was saying, in addition to how it's received, there's something to be said about the gift giver by the type of gift that he gave. And Jesus was saying, There's something to be said about the receiver of the gift, too. You have to accept the gift. You can't receive the gift if you're not willing to accept it. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. 
And so that's why we have to ask, well, what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God? And also, a little later with a clarification, like a little child. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. In order to receive the kingdom, you have to be willing to repent and believe. Jesus was saying, in order to enter the kingdom, in order to repent, you have to become my child. You can't be confident. You have to be dependent. In order to believe, you have to surrender. You have to have a childlike trust and faith. The gospel in Mark 1 is the same gospel in Mark 10 and in John 3. Mark 10 here, Jesus is preaching the same gospel that he already preached in Mark 1. Repent and believe the good news. In order to receive the kingdom, you have to be willing to repent and believe. You can't come saying, sort of like the rich young ruler, what's the one thing I can do to inherit this? Because I'll do it. I'll I'll do it. You just give me the word, tell me what to do. Because there's nothing you can do. You don't do anything to earn a gift. Otherwise, it's not a gift. You do nothing other than take the gift and accept it in order to receive it. You have to come as a child does, dependent, calling for help. I can't do this on my own. I can't do life on my own. I'm not good. Picture a kid saying, I did something bad and I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. You have to come like that in repentance and you have to believe that he will forgive you that the forgiveness offered is a true offer, believing that he won't count your sins against you anymore. Jesus talks here more about how to receive it rather than the benefits for receiving it. It's a brief three verses. And he, in word, teaches about the reception of it. Indeed, in actions, he blesses these children. Maybe he blesses them to show salvation and adoption are in themselves a blessing by entering as well as justification and then the sanctification that is to come, but he doesn't speak to those things. Rather, here he is concerned with compressing upon people the only way that they will enter the kingdom of God. That they've got to come to God by one road only. Not all ways and approaches to God are acceptable. You know, you can pick any approach you want and it works. No! You've got to enter as a child does, or you'll just never enter. If you don't come as a child does, if you don't receive the kingdom as a little child, then you will never enter it. So what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a little child? And how does a person receive the kingdom of God like a little child? Jesus sort of pre-answered the rich young ruler's coming question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? With this portion, he sort of pre-answered that question. You're going to have to come as a child, utterly dependent upon me. You're going to have to give up your dependence on everything else. For the rich young man, that was his wealth, and he didn't seem to receive what Jesus had to say. He went away sad with his head hung down, unable to come as it seems. What a very hard obstacle to overcome. Impossible to overcome as a man, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. If you think of a, a little child, beyond the contrast of coming, the coming story of the rich young ruler, in tr- as it is contrasted to these three verses, beyond that contrast, think about how a little child receives a gift in the first place. Now, it's, it, that's very helpful, and it's a tangible picture. 
And Jesus gives us something, an illustration that we can all be familiar with. The light on a child's face when they receive a gift. The joy and smile on their face when they are given a package to open it. And they don't save the paper. They just go full bore for it, you know? And they just trust that it's meant for them and to be good for them. Little children, not the older ones who are jaded, like what's in there and is it going to be something good? No, but that first year or two where they get to open presents and they understand what it means to get one. They trust it's good. And usually, if it's the first present they've ever opened, I don't know if you've ever seen it, they think it's the only present and they're not aware that there's more there. They just get so caught up in the moment of that one gift. See, there's a way that a little child receives something. There's a way that they trust because they've never been hurt before. There's a way their hearts are just fully open. No reservations. Unless we can receive the kingdom of God the way that a little child receives something, fully open, no reservations, full faith on the person that they're putting their trust in, total acceptance, unless we receive it like that, Jesus said, we'll never enter it. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like little children. And unless you receive it like a little child does, then you'll never make it. And that's the gospel. It's the same message Jesus preached all over. John 3, Mark 1, Mark 10. And for those who have accepted the gospel, I think we have to ask ourselves, where does that put us now? What does the gospel do for me? How does it rather, how does it inform my life? You know, Scripture speaks about ways that the gospel informs a believer's life. Uh, We're taught things like, since you've been forgiven, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. And I didn't pre-plan it with Joe, but there was a couple scriptures there while he was praying that uh, I had thought of. And one of them was, forgive others, because you've been forgiven. Love others. If you only love those that love you, you aren't doing anything better than anyone else in the world. You've got to love your enemy. Love those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. The gospel informs our lives. It informs who we are. Sinners who are forgiven. We're people who earn nothing. As we start to wrap up, you should ask yourself, what can I learn from these three verses? Is it one of these be like Jesus passages? Here's your moral lesson. Uh, learn it and go on. Or maybe better than that, like here's a truth. Leave and feel good. It's, but it's not any of that. It's not a teaching on what to be like or a moral lesson or a feel-good passage. It's more than that. It's meant to be fully grasped and understood. Fully grasping the gospel and understanding it. Letting it form your life Clarification here, this doesn't mean if you're a believer that Hebrews 6, one or other scriptures about spiritual maturity aren't true or are in subordination to the gospel, but rather that the gospel comes first. The foundation comes first, and then the spiritual maturity follows. Recently I was reading and came across this question. As a Christian, which do you believe is more profitable for growing the kingdom of God? In other words, what would be the most effective way to lead peoples of all nations to Christ. They offered A, reading and teaching the Bible, or B, hearing and preaching the Gospels. And my reply to that sort of question would be, well, which type of growth are you really looking for? Spiritual growth in the believer or numerical growth in numbers? Which is more important? Perhaps sharing the Gospel is more important than refined head knowledge. 
and numerical growth might be more pressing than spiritual growth. Maybe. Eternity and the eternal destination of people might be more pressing than just learning a little extra something. But what about the spiritual growth growth that God has planned for us to do? How can I say spiritual maturity is not important? Neglect it for the sake of the gospel. I mean, can we say that? Hebrews 6.1 is equally true as is the Great Commission in Matthew 28.19, is it not? Hebrews 6.1, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Matthew 28.19, the Great Commission, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19, focusing on the great commission of the gospel, doesn't ignore the other scriptures like Hebrews 6, 1. Because, Matthew 28, 20, the very next verse, Jesus tells us also to teach them and teach them everything, to, to obey everything I have commanded you. And even right in verse 19, Jesus says to make disciples. Well, making disciples doesn't start and stop with the gospel. It starts with the gospel. And later, spiritual milk is moved on from. It's like a baby with breast milk. Like, they need it. And that's the only thing that they can drink. But do they need to keep drinking it once they're three years old or five years old or a teenager and an adult? It's kind of gross. No, of course not. They stop drinking it as they grow and mature. Breast milk is not a solid diet for anyone over one year old. Making disciples doesn't start and stop with the gospel, but it does start with the gospel. The gospel that we have recorded for us in Mark, chapters 1 through 10 so far. It's the gospel that everyone needs to hear. And why do people need to hear it? Because everyone is in need. We all know the depth of our own sins. And everyone needs to hear the good news that those sins can be washed away. To hear that they have to be honest. Honest enough to admit the depth of their sins, and to repent of them. We have to repent and believe, as little children do. We have to have faith that believes, no reservations, total acceptance in our attitude. We have to be like little children. This doesn't mean you get your act together first. Coming to Jesus, asking, now what's the last thing I have to do to inherit eternal life now that I've got all my ducks in a row? No, that would be ignorant of the uh, dependent state that a child comes in. We have to come like the man in Mark 9, 24. I do believe, but not perfectly. Help me overcome my unbelief. Mark 4, 31 says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You see, it's not perfection before acceptance. If you have even the faith as small as the mustard seed, which is the smallest seed of them all, if you've got even the smallest form of faith possible, the size of a mustard seed, it'll grow, it'll still grow into the largest tree possible. That spiritual maturity is in Christ. Our forgiveness in the gospel is in Christ. What we've been learning throughout Mark as we read the gospel of the good news of God is that you can't earn salvation. It only comes from God and it only comes in his way. Here today in Mark 10, Jesus taught that the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like little children. And unless you enter like a little child, you'll never enter it. Unless you have childlike faith born out of repentance 
and reception of God's grace for your sins, unless you receive the kingdom of God in this way, you'll just never enter it. When it comes to inheriting the kingdom, with God, nothing is impossible. There's no sin beyond his grace. There's no sinner he hasn't died for and offered salvation to. Too often, I think, and, and maybe you've thought it at times too, what a wretch I am. Here I am, I'm supposed to be this child of God, and I screw up all the time. And then we come to the scriptures and we look at them, and there Jesus is. He's taking the children who come to him, and and he's taking them in his arms, he's holding them, and more than that, he puts his hand on them in a special way, and he blesses them. He's teaching with his words about entering the kingdom, and he shows with his actions his continuing tenderness and willing to bless, willingness to bless. And so Jesus is tender and kind, and this is one of those pictures. But he also taught very directly in this picture. Look, if you don't come God's way, you're never going to enter. God is just, and sin demands a payment. This gospel Mark wrote, we'll see as we read the rest of Mark, that it shows that Jesus is making that payment, that the, the payment that sin demands on the cross in our place, and he's offering forgiveness to all. I'd like to close with the scripture that I was preaching from Grand Village Nursing Home last week from Chronicles, Second Chronicles 6. In it, Solomon is praying at the dedication to the temple. In his prayer, he praises God saying, There is no God like you in heaven or on earth, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants. And then Solomon asks, Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land that you gave your people for an inheritance. And then God responds in chapter 7. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. You see, God hasn't changed. He offers forgiveness in the gospel for those who don't have it so that it informs our life in Christ in every area And for his people who are called by his name, he hasn't changed. He saves us by forgiving us through his covenant of love, which is fulfilled in the gospel message with Jesus on the cross. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask that you would hear our prayers. We praise you that you hear us when we pray. And you forgive those who turn to you in humility and repentance. We thank you for the gospel and that it informs our life. That because of it, we can forgive others as Christ forgave us. That because of it, we can be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. That we can bear up one another's burdens. Your covenant of love is our foundation. The foundation of our relationship is fulfilled in the gospel with you. We ask that as a body you would help us, help us to forgive one another, 
Help us to bear one another up. We ask that you would guide us, show us your will as we turn and we seek you. That by your Holy Spirit, you would lead us into all truth. That you would teach us by your Spirit and bring us into a spiritual maturity. As we move forward as a body, I ask that your hand be upon us and your words be in our hearts like a strong tree planted by the river of your life. Lord, we pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.